Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a hilarious comedian and podcaster on American Arts and Culture Review, plus the star, director, co-writer, co-producer, and even editor of Slamdance Audience Award-winning The Civil Dead. Please welcome Clay Tatum. How's it going, man? What's up, my man? Hi, dude. Thrilled to have you on here, but... Before we get into The Civil Dead, which I really loved, why don't you tell us a little bit about your just general history with horror? Oh, boy, you're not going to—I don't think you're going to like this answer. <laughs> I am personally not a huge fan of horror. I think when I was a boy, it spooked me. <laughs> and then when I got older, I think my introduction to horror was, like, through slasher films. And I just did, I didn't care for it one bit. <laughs> And then I would see, like, the ones that everyone loves, like Exorcist and The Shining, and those I really like, but it's, like, it's they're just good movies. I don't know. <laughs> and then I think there's, like, a niche in horror mm-hmm. that there's not that many of them, but, like, you know, I, I do like Blair Witch yeah. a lot. I like any of them that feel more creepy than they do, or, like, more eerie than mm-hmm. they do just, like, outright scary. And so that's my whole history with horror. There you so go. It's, I'm not a big fan, but there's pockets that I really find uh, interest in. I think that that's, that's the way that a lot of people kind of get a foothold in the genre is, you know, they find something that does speak to them and then uh, it sort of can grow from there. I certainly came to horror uh, very late as well, personally. So, What was your gateway? Or what was the thing that you started doing and you're like, oh man, this is like great. Yeah, so I was like working for a website where I wrote reviews, but I was too scared of horror (laughs) to to like do anything. Right, yeah, no, I get that. And I was like, I cannot look at myself and call myself like a well-rounded film enthusiast and and just completely avoid an entire genre. It wasn't even just that I disliked it. I was just completely avoiding it entirely. And so I started doing basically like a self-imposed immersion therapy where I just started going through like the tentpole franchises and watching every installment. And I started with like Friday the 13th and mm-hmm. watched one through 12 or whatever they got to uh, by the time they did the remake um, and then Nightmare on Elm Street and it was just really interesting as I went through the franchises to kind of see the way that it evolved like with the time uh, while still keeping like a through line but also they were cheesy enough and bad enough for some of the sequels that I was able to kind of keep myself at a remove while still engaging with it as an as a movie so i wasn't too scared of it yeah so that was kind of where it started i just found myself really enjoying it uh, as as like not necessarily a scary thing like i would say that i probably don't get scared of a lot of horror movies but i still have fun probably for a lot of the reasons that michael haneke <laughs> would be very upset about yeah and just sort of a thrill ride uh, aspect is there have you talked about on this podcast your what you think is your the world's best mm. Uh, well, you know, it kind of changes every day. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have had a couple episodes where I picked the movie. And uh, for those episodes, I did the 1972 Tarkovsky movie Solaris, which mm-hmm. I am a huge fan of. I think it's great. It's sort of something that people kind of get a little frustrated that I insist on calling it a horror movie. But it is a ghost story, and it, he's deliberately resistant to sci-fi as well, like that title. So I think it is a horror movie. And uh, the new Suspiria, the remake of Suspiria, I thought was really fantastic as well. Yeah, I, I hate myself that I haven't finished uh, Solaris, and I've started it about four <laughs> or five times. It's slow. It's very slow. And I really, but the thing is, is like when I, you know, they have that beginning where they're watching like the clip and all that. Yeah. 
and then it goes into the long driving. Yeah. <laughs> and that I am I am jazzed by that driving scene. I'm jazzed by the pacing. I love like the how like slow everything is going. And then he gets on the spaceship and I go, Well, heck, I'm gonna do something else now. I feel like I've gotten my money's worth here. <laughs> and I've just never finished it. And every time someone brings it up I get like I sort of get triggered that I haven't like done the work because like stalker yeah stalker's great is great and yeah. i i'm i'm pissed at myself that i'm <laughs> such a bad movie watcher <laughs> yeah well it's interesting too because stalker and solaris are both very deliberate efforts by tarkovsky to kind of escape genre trappings and and make it more about the message than about people coming to it to be like i want to see a spaceship yeah so it is uh you know kind of interesting that that Two great movies, you know, speaking of great movies and the one we're talking about today, and uh, Solaris are very resistant to being boxed into a genre. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or flipping the genre. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I do want to talk about Civil Dead some. I, like I said, watched it at Slam Dance. I thought it was great. Very funny, but also very well done. And I think you guys managed to avoid the cheap look that tends to haunt indie movies, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. There are a bunch of explicit horror references in terms of you play a guy who can shine, you know, like The Sixth Sense. I'd love to hear if there were any movies, horror or otherwise. You know, you said that you're not a huge horror guy. There's a fun noirish section. Uh, if there are any movies that kind of influenced you in terms of being like, I like what this is accomplishing or saying, especially as it relates to, quote unquote, the rules of being a ghost. The one film that we, like, we didn't have enough time to really ruminate on, like, what is, like, our influences here with this film, but, like, one that kept on coming up that I did watch beforehand actively just to get inspiration from was American Werewolf in London. Because that movie is about just two friends, and one friend is dead, and one he does communicate with his dead friend. Yeah. And the way that the the movie is like really really relaxed, it sometimes feels like a hangout movie, kind of. <laughs> yeah. In a weird way, I don't know. The movie's really short too, so I don't know even how that's possible. But it has like this really relaxed feel to it. And then when it starts cooking, it starts cooking. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene in that movie where he goes to, uh, I think it's like a porn theater. Yeah. And he talks to his dead friend. Oh, he's and they rotting. Have back and forth. <laughs> yeah, and he's rotting. But like. They're dead, and it's such a big scene. But the way they talk to each other, there's a like you can feel like they're friends, and there's like a familiar thing. Yeah, like there's a familiarity between them, and it's because it's like their conversations are so light and like comedic, Mm -hmm. and which is exactly what we were wanted to do in the Civil Dead. Like take a heavy situation, but underplay it with just like light banter and just like two dumbasses <laughs> arguing and whatever. Yeah, well I think you guys definitely achieve that kind of breezy dialogue and I think that it's uh, that's a, a really interesting one to pull from especially because you're right it is short but it does cook in those moments but the reason I think that it feels so breezy is because you kind of understand like once he dies and time has no meaning for him anymore there's there's no rush really (laughs) yeah so the the tone of conversation becomes very laconic and uh and you know he's he's just along for the ride yeah john landis is just he's just he's my guy oh man he was like one of my first like favorite filmmakers as a as a boy yeah the blues brothers is my favorite movie thanks to my dad so (laughs) yeah i mean that was like a huge that was like a movie that i would see like over and over again yeah watch it like once a week but I haven't seen it in a long time. Ooh, so. It's good. It's. I think. I, yeah. I think it holds up. <laughs> yeah. No. I've seen it like within the past like six years. There you go. So like, you know that. Yeah. It, you're it, you're it, still in. You're still. 
I'm still in. It's just like um, it, it is a movie that I might want to rewatch. Yeah. Soon. There you go. Solaris and Blues Brothers. I'm giving you all kinds of homework. Dude, I need. Dude, I have so much. If you knew how many films I've seen that just the first half. So you mentioned in the commentary for The Civil Dead that the genesis of the movie is kind of reflective of your wife's fear of home invasion. Yeah. Which, to me, feels like a perfect segue into the movie that we're talking about today, Funny Games. I'm wondering if this movie had a direct hand in that fear. No, I don't think Funny Games does. I think... I don't know if there is... I don't know if it is a movie. I think... Just general? (laughs) I think me and my wife are both, like, very scared people Mm -hmm. in general. And I don't think media has anything to blame Mm -hmm. for that. And also, it's weird because, like... What was that? What was the one movie, the Dustin Hoffman movie, Stray Dogs? Straw Dogs. Straw Dogs. That movie is, like, would be kind of triggering for me. Um, just because, like, if I, uh, like, whatever fears I have of home invasion, that plays out so brutally there. But for the funny games, for some reason, the movie is so zany to me Mm -hmm. that it, like, I, I'm not triggered at all. I'm just, like, totally in the movie, and it just doesn't, it's just, it feels so removed, because it's so, like, bizarre that I don't really, it doesn't really scare me at all. Yeah, I think that because of the deliberate attitude that Haneke was coming into it with, as opposed to something like Straw Dogs, which kind of revels in the lasciviousness of it, kind of hinges right on the edge of an exploitation movie, there is a pretty different tone despite having a similar content. When you went into Funny Games, did you, what was the... Um did you have any, like, clue what you're going into? Yeah, so this was my first time watching it, which we talked about briefly off air. I did know sort of the message of the movie. Yeah. So I, I and I did know that it was also uh, like a shot-for-shot remake of his own movie, but as far as the actual content, I was going in pretty much blind. Good. Okay, great. Before we even get to production info, I think it is important that we talk about the impetus of this film specifically, which is how director Michael Haneke feels about the relationship between violence and media. One person that I feel like is an easy person to draw a comparison point to is Friedrich Schiller, who is a German playwright and philosopher who felt that aesthetic activity can lead to higher humanity, although Haneke feels this in slightly less absolutist terms in terms of feeling that beauty should be good in a moralistic sense as opposed to is good, which Schiller felt. But this movie is kind of a mirror image of Friedrich's approach because this brings you to contemplation of humanity through despair instead of raising you up. And it's made doubly ironic because the villains in this movie have, although negative to our eyes, pure goals that basically make them Schillerian ubermenches. This reminds me of a meme that I made today because I wanted to rewatch Funny Games today. Mm. And so I made a meme. And the meme was, there's the template is, there's a picture of something and a guy, and there's an arrow that goes over his head, and there's a arrow going from his eyes to the thing, mm-hmm. saying whatever, whatever the movie's actually about goes over his head. Uh-huh. And what is the movie's about is a self-referential exploration of the truth value of artificial images and the entertainment of violence. Yeah. And all he sees is, LOL, he rewinded the movie. <laughs> And that's exactly how I feel about the movie, too. Because when I, when I feel, when I first saw it, I was like, oh my god, like, this is such a wacky film. And then, like, <laughs> looking into it, you can see Haneke, like, um, talking about the relationship between violence and, like, storytelling. Yeah. And I go, listen, my man, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. 
<laughs> the, the, the part where he rewinded the movie, that blew my fucking head off. <laughs> but the cool thing is, it is cool to watch the movie and have the characters do fucking zany, wacky shit, knowing that, like, they're doing that because they're proving the thesis of the movie. Like, it, it all, le- it all, it's such a clean movie where everything is so deliberate and it's so precise. Yeah, especially for something like this where you kind of expect it to feel a little clunky because sometimes the message... Oops. I didn't, no, nothing happened. Didn't, nothing happened. <laughs> because uh, sometimes the message can get in the way of the actual execution because they lose focus on it. And I think that this movie is so artfully done it is so well executed in terms of the actual look and performances that it really does function incredibly well on two separate levels yeah you know and you kind of like understand it like subconsciously what he's doing like throughout the whole movie he's setting up certain tropes and the one trope would be like all right you the the bad guys think they got you but oops you get away (laughs) yeah and then that instantly fails Mm -hmm. and then that happens again and it instantly fails the neighbors show up Uh uh-oh that instantly fails and it happens over and over again until it it reaches the highest level of absurdity with remote control scene yeah and then at that point you're like okay fuck (laughs) we're lost this is just like there's no there's nothing that we can do here. Right. You're, you really feel lost, and you're like, fuck, there's nothing we can do. And you, you give up, and you surrender to the film. Yeah, it really does feel like uh, a cliff that you fall off of in that moment. You know, There are points where he looks at the camera and says, like, oh, you're probably on their side, or who do you think is going to win, or whatever. And this is the moment where, very deliberately, any hope that it will go their way goes out the window. Yeah, and also my man has a big Joker moment <laughs> where he tries to, like, tell a fake backstory of why they're doing this, and Tim Roth instantly doesn't buy into it, kind of playing, like, the audience at that point. And that's, like, anytime a, a movie has a Joker moment, <laughs> Daddy's happy. Yeah, it was particularly nice that he went, he 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 Exactly. <laughs> and then, then they showed a clip of the Joker for five minutes. <laughs> Really strange. I liked it, though. Really strange part. And I was like, y'all, you did this in the original, too? What the fuck? (laughs) Yeah, really fantastic. Haneke, a genius ahead of his time. Mm -hmm. He thinks the reason that violence in movies, in particular, is so intense is because it is so tangible to the senses. He says, you're in a dark room. It's a huge screen. The booming sound. Uh, In short, he says, a movie's ability to overwhelm us predestines it for a narcotized reception. Great phrase, Michael. My man's, fucking, my man's too smart for his own good, dude. But beyond just movies, he feels that all moving imagery which shows you the action puts you in the shoes of the perpetrator versus showing just the aftermath in something like newspaper photos mm-hmm. evokes solidarity with the victims. And he feels that this is compounded because popular genres throughout the years like Westerns, crime movies, war, adventure, and horror specifically, define themselves primarily through violence. Even the word action, he says, which precedes the filming of every take, has fused with the word film, at least in the minds of the consumers, as a synonym for violent spectacle. It's funny though, how much he talks about violence and stuff, and like, it, it, with a, like a, like, in a way like he's critiquing it, and how like, violent his movies are. Have you ever seen Benny's video? No, I haven't. Benny's video is probably, might might be my favorite Haneke movie 
and it's a movie that is like a boy just obsessed with like in the uk sorry for going so british so early <laughs> video nasties um, he becomes like obsessed with like he the movie starts with him watching a video of a pig getting slaughtered and eventually he brings home a, a, a girl that he meets like this is a kid like a, a 12 year old kid brings home a girl he meets and then films him killing the uh, girl mm-hmm. but it's done in such a very haneke way where it's very sterile and you just watch the screen happen and like the violence happens off screen mm. but you're like you have to sit there and i don't know where i'm going with it with uh, <laughs> this comparison to funny games but my man makes violent fucking movies he does that's part of what makes it so interesting is that he does understand the draw you know he's spe- i was reading tons of interviews with him and he said representing violence in a narrative and aestheticized way allows for catharsis of our own fears and desires our protagonist transcends helplessness with their accomplishments as a stand-in for the viewer but where haneke differentiates himself is in thinking that like smoking or drinking this is something that is fun but toxic yes i mean he i mean definitely he like his track record shows that he doesn't show death in, in in a in a glorious way at all yeah it's very like very very clinical in the way he shows it and it's like it's like more disturbing seeing someone die off camera in his movies than to see yeah. like you know friday the 13th where it's like glamorized and you kind of like you get desensitized to that violence yeah well to that point you know i think friday the 13th is a great example he said there are three ways to create an acceptable crowd-pleasing display of violence the first is to disengage the situation from our own relatable experiences which prevents transference and the examples he gives here are the western science fiction and a lot of horror movies it's not likely that you've been chased by <laughs> a slasher like Jason. So you can remove yourself from that situation and go, okay, this is just fun. The second way is intensifying living conditions until the viewer approves of the act of violence as liberating and positive, the only acceptable solution. And this examples he uh, gives as war and police movies, as well as vigilante dramas like Death Wish and Falling Down. Yeah. And there's, yeah, in the, in the moment, and it's funny because, like, the only time you see violence in the funny games is when there is the revenge killing mm-hmm. of when she grabs the gun, and then that instantly gets ruined, wiped. Like I said, or get wiped. Yeah. And you're back to fucking <laughs> square one. Unquote. Yeah, you're back to fucking square one. Negatives, yeah. negative squares, honestly, at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and, and just the third way, which I think this movie does a little bit of, is making the surrounding movie funny or satirical. Yeah. The quoted examples were from the slapstick of silent film to the beat them up comedies with Bud Spencer and Terrence Hill, from spaghetti westerns right up to war grotesqueries based on the model of Catch-22 and the postmodern cynicism of Pulp Fiction. Haneke, my man, really going in. Yeah, oh, big time. I mean, like, my man is... You ever seen the interview with him? It's, like, a director's... All these directors got together. It's for, like, some DGA thing, maybe. Mm -hmm. And the guy from The Office who directed a movie... I forget his name. But it was him and Michael Haneke and someone else. And they were all, like... See, I've, I, this is the worst way to tell the story because I don't remember it. I'm just like, I'm just letting you guys know to listen, to watch this clip. Mm-hmm. An interview, someone asked him a question about violence in movies or something, and my man goes off. And he <laughs> goes off in this large tangent. And then they go to my man John, or whatever the guy's name is from The Office, and he goes, all right, do you want to add to this? And my man's just caught there like a deer in the headlights, <laughs> and he goes, yeah, I think, I think, Haneke said, "Right, yeah, I think it's, I think it's great." And just, 
Because you can't, you can't keep up with my dude here. No. My man has been thinking about movies and, like, his relationship with violence and media and just, like, everything. Yeah, he's Martin Luther in it, man, nailing up these 95 theses. Exactly, my man. <laughs> and this really is kind of that, that thesis that you mentioned, you know, it becomes, the point of the movie becomes about creating a shift in this, something that lures you in, but then makes you aware of your complicity by bringing you into it and focusing on the reaction to violence instead of having the violence on screen, seeking to create the kind of revulsion that newspaper headlines evoke instead of the glee that action fans might be seeking. Mm-hmm. And as far as Michael felt, the reason for this was not only the media desensitizing us to violence in general, but he also said that because so much of our lives is viewed looking at a screen, the only thing differentiating Star Wars and the Blitz of Kuwait is the time slot it comes in on. <laughs> uh, and this was decades ago. You know, I couldn't find any addendums about his opinion of smartphones, although I did look. <laughs> well, he made a new, he made, there's a movie he made that has a lot of smartphones. Did he? I'll have to and check it, that out. Uh, called, it's called Happy End. Ooh. And it was his last movie he ever made. And wow. I don't fucking remember what the movie's fucking about. Wow. But it was very good. It wasn't my favorite, but it was um, very upsetting. Nice. Well, I'll have to uh, check it out. I'm very curious to uh, to see how, you know, having now watched this, see how it evolved as time continued and things possibly got more dire considering your uh, perspective. Oh, my God. Okay, so I'm looking up the video right now. And it's Michael Haneke uh, disagreeing with Spielberg's Schindler's List. And he goes mm. off. He goes on a big tangent for mm. about three minutes. And then it lands on fucking John Krasinski <laughs> and Judd Apatow. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll throw that in, your, in the chat just so you can watch it later. Yeah, definitely. Poor John. <laughs> I mean, dude, I mean, I'd be in the same, I'd be in the same fucking position. Yeah, absolutely. Have you seen any Michael Haneke movies? This was my first one. This was my first one. That's great. I think this is a great gateway into his movies. If you really liked it, I would hop over to Piano Teacher, Benny's Video, The Seventh Fucking Continent. I think it's what it's called. I don't know. I'm I'm dumb as dirt. My IQ is my IQ is ninety. The Piano Teacher came up a lot when I was looking, uh, like researching. So that uh, that did sound interesting to me. You would really like it. I'm sure. I'm sure. He also feels like a large part of the desensitization is specifically related to the way media evolved and particularly the relationship between TV and movies. First of all, he thought it was interesting that the dissociation from reality for movies is deliberately cultivated going back as far as people being freaked out by the arrival of the train at La Ciotat. <laughs> it's a very scary. It's, it's, it still scares me to this day. It's terrifying. That's, I'm surprised that that hasn't come up as the best horror movie ever made, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. What are you, are you kidding me? Choo-choo's coming right at me. <laughs> this is our mini episode on that <laughs> within uh, the larger episode. It's a great movie. Lumiere Brothers, kill it. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Hey, dude, I got a, the spookiest idea. <laughs> but he said the oscillation between the disconcerting feeling of being present at a real event and the emotional security of seeing only the image of an artificially created or found reality is what enabled the emergence of the genres that he mentioned earlier. And violence becomes domesticated in its image, and the pleasant chill of horror administered in homeopathic dosage is quite welcome. I mean, it is weird to, like, you can watch something on the screen and of someone getting brutally murdered, Mm -hmm. and if it's, like, done, if it's packaged in a certain way, you won't feel a damn thing. And it is true. That is kind of frightening. It really is, and it's exacerbated a lot by 
TVs and, and the omnipresence of them. You know, he specifically feels like movies tried to counter that with intensity, creating a feedback loop exacerbated by the further blurring of reality and fiction thanks to news footage of wars like Vietnam and the invasion of the Gulf. And that was a huge deal when that started appearing on, like, your 7 o'clock news. Right. And he said this appeal to authentic terror actually led to a lack of respect for the dignity of victims, which I think is very clear in this movie in the way that the moments where he's, like, forcing her to undress and everything don't feel sexualized. He said the wide lockdown shot where she's, like, trying to get up after everything ha- like everything <laughs> explodes, that he didn't want to do close-ups in that moment to avoid, like, becoming pornographic and really, like, lo- like lavishing the awfulness of it on us. So it is uh, interesting just to see how much he's trying to respect the characters, even though, well, I guess this is kind of the point, that, you know, we know they're fake, but he's treating them like real people, which mm. is, uh, to, I think, the movie's benefit. Oh. Boy, the way, yeah, I, my man has a really good, uh, he does a great job with just making you feel just sick to your stomach because you're just forced to sit there and just watch everything play out in a wide. And you're like, she's having trouble getting up now and she's going to go and turn off the TV and it's so oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> it's rough. It's really rough. <laughs> but, oh God, my man just does, it's just, it just, it's so, I mean, I'm very excited for you to go back and watch his earlier stuff because, like, whatever he does in Funny Games, he's been doing since day one. Wow. Since, like, his first movie, The Seventh Continent, which is just, like, it's a movie where really nothing happens until it does. And when it happens, you're like, what the fuck (laughs) are you fucking watching, dude? You fucking sicko? (laughs) Go to a tight shot, my man. Wow. I'm feel, I'm feeling icky looking at this wide and of all this bad stuff. Wow, the handman does it again, <laughs> dude. The handman does it a lot, and you have a lot of movies to see him do his nasty little thing. That's the damn dream. Mm-hmm. Is there a horror movie that you thought about comparing this movie to? Watching it, is there like a? Did you have like a movie that you kind of had in mind? I like The Strangers. As a as a as like a home invasion movie that is not so overwhelmingly like triggering to me personally, like it's, it's violent, but there's no like rape or anything in it, which is something that I uh, am happy when that's not in there. Yeah. Uh, um, Again, nothing happened. Sorry. <laughs> God, what the fuck am I doing? Go off, King. Got the dropsies. Yeah. But what's interesting and what I think makes this movie so hard to compare other movies to is that The Strangers is so workmanlike. And part of what I like about it is just that it is very lean and just does exactly what it sets out to accomplish. But this, by playing with the form of cinema and stretching the boundaries of what it can accomplish, kind of really positions itself as unique. Yeah. And it, it, it starts from the get-go. I mean, like, the first scene is great. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, when the John Zorn music comes oh, in. Oh, so good. It just, like, really informs you, like, hey, listen, you're, we're going we're gonna to catch you off guard. <laughs> yeah. We're going to do for the next fucking hour 40. So just, like, just let you know this is what you're walking into. I was looking up John Zorn, and it was like, he resists categorization. I was like, yeah, that sounds right for the hand man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the hand man <laughs> goes, what did you say to me? <laughs> Can I have that? Yeah. One other piece of his, like, messaging thing that I did want to touch on, last little bit, he does feel that the shape of representation informs the effect of the content, which is to say, having these horrible images surrounded by advertising, calmly hawking toothpaste, does uh, 
a lot to normalize this violence by flattening everything to equal content. It creates a universal fictionality. Mm-hmm. So the question becomes, how do I, as Michael Haneke, give the viewer the chance to recognize this loss of reality and their implication in it, thus emancipating them from being a victim of the medium and becoming its potential partner, especially as it relates to violence. And as far as he's concerned, the only way to have actual art these days is to have some level of self-examination and reflection happening within. And what he means by that is he has man talk to camera. Yeah. <laughs> You have someone wink, boom, you're fucking art, baby. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I did like watching the movie, and when my man starts, I think, I don't remember the first time he, like, addresses the camera. I think it's when he's playing Hot or Cold, and she's, like, looking to see whatever. And right before she finds the dog in the car, he, like, turns to the camera and just gives him a nasty little smile. Knowing. Oh, boy. <laughs> I saw this movie when it came out in 2000, I think, 7. It's, like, right when I moved to Ella. 2008, March, uh, March 14th, 2008, Pi Day. Coming right up. My man. Cut yourself off a slice of Funny Games anniversary. <laughs> I think I was, I saw it right when I moved to LA and I was like trying to get into movies and I was like, let's see what this little thing's about. <laughs> and then right when they started the music, the John Zorn music, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and then when he looked at the camera for the first time, I go, what the? what are you doing and it was such a big fucking moment like it was like a big movie for me yeah well it's so funny that he gave you that experience because in the interview that i uh, watched on the criterion channel he specifically says like i 20 years prior to the original funny games he watched the movie tom jones and they break the fourth wall in that what is tom jones it's a early 60s movie based on the Henry Fielding book. I forget who who was yeah. in it, but uh but he he was like he he looks at the camera and he goes like, "Oh, I hope they don't they don't catch me." Like <laughs> and he was blown away by this. He says like it shocked me into understanding my role and how completely the movie had me in its clutches. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So you wanted to bring that forward. I never seen the original two, mm-hmm. just because it's like I mean the the original Funny Game US has like such a big. It just it's like I feel like it's a perfect film, and I it, and it's it is like weird seeing it in another version yeah. in its original intended version. Even though what he's like critiquing is mainly coming out of like America, so it's like a brilliant move that he would remake it shot for shot for American audiences. And I think I saw the way that it's supposed to be seen as an American who has like a, a steady diet of like movies that he's critiquing that kind of decentral like the de- like I don't know whatever. Um, my IQ is ninety one and I'm four <laughs> feet tall, but it like desensitizes you to violence. And like I'm the perfect audience for that for a person that's like getting into movies now. And I think it just hit me at the right time, and it's better that I see the movie in its American version rather than uh, its original Austrian version for me to get that full effect. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that that was something that really 
struck a nerve with him is that when the movie came out, it was really widely dismissed by critics, not only because they weren't willing to engage with the message, but also because it was a shot for shot remake. He said that a lot of people just put that in their reviews instead of asking or exploring why he might have done that. Right. No, no. The fact that it's a shot for shot remake is such a like it like everything works out. Everything is so perfect with that. Him doing that for that movie is perfect. Like, if he did that for Cachet or another movie of his, it doesn't make sense as much. Mm -hmm. But for him to be like, hey, I'm like, I'm critiquing American media for the most part, even though, like, I'm sure, you know, all countries make movies, you know, in that way. But like, American is like kind of known. Sure for that but honestly the joke's on him because after watching it i was like i'm horny for violence <laughs> so then what didn't work on me you fucked up mike you fucked up dude i think it is important that we mention that this is the shot for shot remake right up top because some of the following information that i'm going to disclose vis-a-vis character development is from this interview that i watched where he is discussing the original movie okay but because it is the remake done from the same director and his same perspective uh, i felt comfortable applying that same discussion to oh the it's the exact same one. message yeah. i mean my man is like thorough like, right he, he's not making it again going like what the other stuff i said earlier I'm just, <laughs> dude i'm making this fucking shit up dude he's like pulling uh, the note cards out of the trash can like where did these go <laughs> I like wide shots because I think they're pretty. I'm not trying to say anything, you tell me. Action! <laughs> so our main characters are George, played by Tim Roth, and played by Naomi Watts, Devin Gearhart as their son Georgie, who has done limited roles since this, and our two delinquents, Michael Pitt and Brady Corbett as Paul and Peter. Which they're like, I don't know what this says about whatever message he's trying to do, but I do like how zany they get as yeah. like a co- comedic role. Like, I mean, I'm sure that plays into like him trying to make violence more uh, palatable. entertaining, yeah. pal- palatable. I mean, I'm sure like that's part of it too, but like he doesn't, he, casting the movie is like perfect. Definitely. Yeah. Because the kid with his scared face is, like, so, like, cartoonish <laughs> and um, exaggerated. Yeah, when he's all like, snotty. <laughs> yeah. And it's, like, so fucking good. The casting in this fucking movie is, oh, God. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's really great. And I think that Naomi Watts and Tim Roth have such a challenge to carry the emotional burden of this movie. Mm-hmm. It's not easy, and they pull it off incredibly. You know, I think it's such a testament to their abilities as actors yeah. that they manage to maintain the emotional core of of what you, as you say, does veer into humor sometimes in, in order to create that message of violence as entertainment. But never are you like this is a joke that they're in on. <laughs> Yeah, it does get a little weird after their son dies, and they're still so deadpan, and, mm-hmm. like, they they ride the line of, like, you know, being sad that their son's dead, but also trying to get out of it. it they play in a deadpan way a little bit, because you kind of expect them to play it bigger or whatever, yeah. but, like, it is, like, their performance is so... It's such a hard performance to do. Yeah, definitely. Thread and the needle. Because you're, you're, you're hitting such a specific tone with like being scared i don't know it's just like it's such a weird thing and i couldn't imagine any other characters doing it which is another reason why i don't <laughs> i haven't watched the original because it's like the movie is so seared in my head as as one way it's hard to yeah i watched half of the original after watching this 
and um, I was like, I'm not getting as much as I got out of the new one. So yeah, uh, take that for what you will out there, folks. You know, maybe just check this one out. It's the same message, but delivered more precisely because it's hitting the intended audience. Yes, exactly. Funny Games was originally going to be about a boy who'd accidentally committed a crime and holed up in the family's empty home, which leads to the reveal of all kinds of familial drama. And in the end, the woman kills the husband. And that got partially funded by the German Arts Fund, but only for 300,000 marks, so he shelved it. Mm. And he revisited it years later, and he came up with our delinquents. Uh, he said specifically that he wanted to subvert class revenge implications, so he put them in tennis outfits, and they're more well-spoken than our already pretty bougie family that they're intruding upon. Uh, he said, I'll leave the class stuff to the Americans. I find it too predictable. Dude, so fucking... I mean, like... I mean, that's something that, of course, my fucking dumb, like, peanut brain didn't pick up on. But, like, subconsciously, it is interesting to be like, these are two people in the same class. And it really helps being confused with the motive. Yes. Because, like, we're so motive-based when we're, like, thinking about crimes and stuff. Like, if you see them, like, in tattered clothing, you understand the motive, which kind of hurts his his message. He's, like, so precise with his message. Mm-hmm. I've actually never thought about that. Um, and I've never, like, even thought about why them being presenting so upper class makes it even more confusing yeah it's terrifying because yeah like you said the motivation or lack thereof is so central to the horror of this movie and and we see george begging them time and time again why are you doing this yeah and it's so funny when they actually do say like hey man we have a drug problem and they (laughs) they sell it in such a bad way where george doesn't buy into it yeah I remember me as a kid watching this movie for the first time. I remember hearing him say that going, of course it's about drugs. <laughs> and then like being so quickly like set back into reality. Got your ass. <laughs> Got my ass. And I go, Michael Haneke, you are, I'm going to whoop your ass next time I see you. And I did. <laughs> big rip, big rip. <laughs> Clay saw him in the dark alley. And that's the last time uh, Michael Haneke got to make a movie. Exactly. <laughs> Why hasn't he made another one in a long time? Because I Kneecapped him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Our two boys, Peter and Paul, they create that tension of equalizing content. But they also have several names, including ones referencing classic comedy duos like Tom and Jerry, who specifically yeah. are also very violent cartoons. Peter and Paul were, of course, martyred together in Rome as well, so there's an element of violence incorporated into those names, too. And they call each other Beavis and Butthead, the quintessential Gen Xers warped by rock and horror. Yes. But the main characters are always George and Anna. And if you watch more Haneke, every one of his characters, his lead two characters, are always George and Anna. And I don't know why that is. That is really interesting. I'm sure what if, if he explained it, it would be like just a fucking... <laughs> A book worth of just explanation of why he names the characters George and Anna. There you go. It's a great name. What can I say? George is a great name. (laughs) But he said that his goal was to avoid a naturalistic framework, which he does by creating this meta and wonky sort of framework for the movie, but maintain a naturalistic performance from the actors. And it works because, like we said, they're in two different films. The couple are in a drama and the delinquents are in a farce. And that's what makes it seem so crazy is that they never play into the drama and the pain. So it never becomes melodramatic. They are enjoying it. There's no compassion for the audience's sake that gives us an out. You know, they they are just crazy and enjoying it and doing this for fun. Yeah, they what we would say in the business, they go they go Joker mode. Yeah, (laughs) 
Big time. They burn the money. Yes. <laughs> he pulls him over. He does the pencil trick. He burns the mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is really funny also at the end how unsatisfying the final death is, too. <laughs> so rushed. Well, while they're talking about also explaining like multiple realities and like they're also like you know i'm sure they're getting at what are movies but like another reality we blah 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 that you're looking at exactly the thing that goes far over my fucking head (laughs) now i think part of what is makes this movie so interesting to me is that all of this reflexivity stuff that we've talked about so far the commentary and everything was added last (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> because the way that the media had developed during the writing of this script and his own response to it was so part and parcel of the, the movie that it became. And so he set about deliberately breaking taboos. He said the first two deaths are a dog and a kid. But the difference is, as he explicitly said in the interview, that the violence isn't the provocative part. There's more violence on screen in a police procedural. The attitude yes. is the provocative part. Yeah, you don't see any... I don't think you see any deaths. The only deaths that you see are the ones that get rewinded. Right. Yeah, and you, yeah, you push... He pushes and the, her and over, the, and the end, the last final death. Right, but you don't but, see her struggle or anything. It's just... But you're not going to believe this. Well, you're not going to believe this, but what really happens is she, like, swims out oh. and she flies, she flies to the moon. Oh, my gosh! Wow, I should have like, stayed for the after-credits stinger. It's not in the after credits, in the, it's in the subtext. So if you give it a watch, yeah, you'll so. realize, like, oh, she swam out and then she flew to the moon. This is why, this, see, this was only my first time through. Next time I'll, I'll be looking for that. I'll be like, mm-hmm. oh, I see it. You know, she talks oh, about the moon. Looking back now, she talks about the moon frequently. So. And then it's also like, it's like Cloverfield. At the very end, you can see, like, a pixel fly up to the moon. And then if you listen close enough, she goes, wow, to the moon. Oh, man. The cell comes on that says Poochie crossed out and was needed on her home planet. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So these are things to look out um, yeah. for. This is the tips you won't hear on just any old movie podcast. Exactly. And my man speaking mumbo-jumbo half the time, she's talking about the themes of this movie. You can't, it's hard to understand, so you need a dumbo like me to... <laughs> tell you what really happens in the movie well so he also said of course intellectuals bristled at this movie and said you don't have to tell us this we know just shut up and enjoy the freaking flick dude exactly he said it's another thing entirely to know it while you're watching and and he loved the response both positive and negative because he said he said it showed he landed direct blows on our hearts more so than just a positive reception it was provoking to provoke insight in us so there you go. Yeah. I mean, r- regardless of like what the intellectual themes and whatever it is, that all works on people subconsciously. A fucking dummy like me kind of kind of can read into like, you know, he's critiquing violence. We all get it. But it's the movie is just at its basic parts. It's like it's so well made. Yeah. It's so entertaining and it's and it plays you like a fucking fiddle. It, and it, it makes you go, my man, you got me again. <laughs> What the fuck are you going? Because you're never going to predict my man's going to rewind the freaking flick. You'll never see it coming. Did you know about the rewind part? No, I had no idea. Oh, (laughs) babes in the wood, man. You really saw this the right way. <laughs> oh, man. I, this is like one of the movies I wish I could watch for the first time again. Well, I'm, I'm living it for you, brother. <laughs> yeah, I know. And you get to do it again. You get to do it again with uh, Benny's video, oh, Seven yeah. Continent. I'm uh, excited. Piano teacher, right at the top of the mm-hmm. list. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have all... You have so many movies. I'm fucking 
Jones. Oh, yeah, baby. The problem is that the first movie flopped in America because he said people realized it was a Trojan horse and rejected it. And he, so he said, aha, I'll do it with English-speaking actors, and I'll set it in Long Island, and I'll put this Trojan horse in a second Trojan horse. <laughs> Which is brilliant because you're reaching a new audience. You're reaching the intended audience. I don't think his intended audience was like the fucking intelligentsia or whatever. I yeah. think his intended, intended audience was a fucking dumbass from Alabama watching it for the first time. <laughs> well, unfortunately, not enough dumbasses from Alabama saw it because it only made $8 million on his $15 yeah, million dollar budget. It, it, he, I did hear interviews that he, he even was upset with its second um, release. Yeah. Because he thought he was going to get a lot of eyes on it. And it, it might be, I, I'm sure Funny Games US is his most popular movie. I don't know if I can say that confidently. I think Cachet is really popular, too. Mm -hmm. But I think it's one of his most... Well, I don't... Fucking White Ribbon was also uh, Oscar-nominated, I think. Anywho, it's, like, up there with his most popular film, and it did underperform under... I don't know. For yeah. someone who's such a great filmmaker as himself, it's like... Maybe he thought he would reach more right. people. Sure. Understandable why it would be but disappointing he, for something that you work so hard on that you do it twice. <laughs> you know, he, uh, he just underestimated how stupid we are. I guess so. <laughs> That's his first Jokes mistake. You, dude. Yeah. He also does view... So it is definitely a touchstone. People know the name. They know that it's hard to get through. He views the touchstone nature of it as sort of a double-edged sword because he doesn't want people to like the movie necessarily for, like, cult reasons where, oh, dude, it's like a grueling test that you have to get through. Like, that's so counter to the point that he's trying to make that uh, he gets a little worried about that, he said. But, you know, at least people are watching it. Yeah, but it's also not like, sorry to go British again. I, will, I won't go British for the rest. It is like a video nasty, okay? I mean, I mean, it's not like a video nasty. What I mean is like because, you know, the deaths happen off screen. When the first real death besides the dog, it's the kid. Mm -hmm. And when you're learning about the kid's death, you're watching NASCAR. Mm -hmm. You know? It's trying to keep you far away from the actual violence and like visually while like I don't know. It's It's hard for me to think that this would be um, what I'm trying to say is, like, I, I have a hard time believing that this is a film that real sickos love to watch. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, it does hit you in a certain level because it feels so, like, clinical that mm -hmm. it does – it might turn on some sickos. Certainly so, yeah. You got the ha-ha-ha-yes onion guy standing mm -hmm. there looking in, watching the movie from your from your window. And he's wearing – his shirt says sicko, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it is. He's in, he is in full sicko mode. <laughs> Uh, I'll try and cruise through the through this plot exploration. No, no, go for it. Hit all it. Right, all right. There's a full minute of silence as we watch the names fade in and out, which I really love. You know, right up top, they're like, boom, you better fucking get ready to contemplate, motherfucker. <laughs> That's great. And the red text is so oh, fucking... I mean, so like, good. graphically, the everything is just fucking on point. Oh, I mean, my gosh. Like the bold red sans serif font is fucking beautiful and a lot of people try to rip it off when the when the artists come up oh when the like the musical artists come up uh right in front of the cd player and it's it's handel mascani mozart and zorn like he's with those three legends yeah. oh it's mm -hmm. incredible I also love, you know, they're, it's our main family driving along. They have a boat in tow. They're playing a classical music guessing game. And the trappings of class are all over the place. And though, although he said he wasn't interested in dealing with class struggle, it's obvious that they are sort of upper class ciphers with golf and fancy radio. And it serves to kind of draw you in as an audience very deliberately 
laying the groundwork for the rug pull by giving you permission to say, oh, these are characters who deserve to suffer for their yuppie tastes. Yeah, but then yuppies are doing it to them. Yeah. And you're like, well, what do I think? What the heck? (laughs) What the heck? What the fuck? The game itself is also interesting because... If you look at it again through that Schiller lens that I was talking about earlier, this family, although they are ostensibly the heroes of our story, have taken something beautiful, these works of art, and made it crass by turning it into just points for their game. And so they kind of deliberately position themselves as the Untermensch to Peter and Paul's Ubermensch through this lens, creating, even subconsciously, creating a tension between the two parties that's atypical from what you might expect. Right. Another thing my dumbass didn't think about. <laughs> I, I also t- totally forget about all the games part of, like, we have a game for you to play. Yeah. Um, or, like, the bet that they do for... And it's also, like, it's so funny, too, because, like, that game that they're, that bet that they make is underplayed so much, like, no one wants to fucking play into it. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And non-diegetically, the music turns into this metal jazz composed by John Zorn. It's a lot of fun. It's very frantic. It really kind of, while they're sitting there and smiling very pleasantly and placidly, this frantic music playing over it really lets you know what you're in for. And with that red text over again, I mean, graphically, this movie is so fucking What a punch. Good. Yeah. Yeah. That's like a... That's great. They pull up outside the gates, and, and Naomi Watts does the classic joking neighbor voice, being like, no practicing. <laughs> but she doesn't recognize two of the two people who are with their neighbors. And they ask Fred, the neighbor, to come over and help launch the boat. And he comes over with one of the guys that they didn't recognize, who introduces himself as Paul. And Fred seems nervous, but Paul is charming. Simultaneously, the other guy they didn't recognize introduces himself as Peter to Anne, asking to borrow some eggs. <laughs> Just generally seeming like a very strange dude. I mean, everything also, like, again, it's like he's playing with us in the beginning, too, how, like, all the dialogue is so can and feels like it's from, like, a Leave it to Beaver type thing. And, like, even, like, asking for your eight and eight yeah. eggs <laughs> is so, like, you know, it's so... I don't know what the word is for, but like like leave it to Beaver. Sure. Like, Feels like a um, relic, a relic of a bygone era. Who goes and borrows eggs anymore? But it's like it's done in such a dry, cynical, like or yeah. clinical way that it's like something's not right with this <laughs> fucking movie. Yeah, and she's even like, "What do you need four eggs for? That's a lot of <laughs> eggs." <laughs> I mean, every, every time he kept on cracking them, I get it's. Ugh. I just I cringe every time, and it, that actually makes me more uncomfortable than the murders that happen <laughs> later on in the movie. <laughs> Him asking for more eggs. Oh my god! Crazy. You just take that. You say, "I fucked it up. We're just not having eggs." <laughs> I cringe more just you know with that than the fucking killing of a child. <laughs> Well, he does drop these eggs, and he also knocks Anne's phone into the sink full of water when she goes to give him the replacements. Love the cinematography in this whole movie, but one thing that's really cool about this scene in particular is that the camera is, like, nailed to Naomi Watts in this when it follows her Mm. around the the kitchen. It's really, really cool. Same cinematographer as um, Uncut Gems and uh, a handful of Woody Allen movies. Wow. Later Woody Allen's. The dog is barking at Peter when he tries to leave, and Paul says, strange way to play, which is, of course, feels very pointed when you look back at it. He also gets stoked about her golf clubs. He asks to try one out, and both of the boys are being extremely pushy, even while being polite. 
and Peter keeps Anne busy in the house while Paul goes off to do just that. And Lucky continues to bark off screen, but that bark becomes a yelp. And George and Georgie give each other a look and go to check on it. And the rope knocks a knife into the boat that will check off his knife. <laughs> yeah. I like how it just plants all these things. It plants everything so well that is, like, tantalizing. Just, like, seeing a knife on screen always, like, oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know why knives fucking sick, like, make me sick in movies. Ooh, but like scary, man. Uh, but, like, the way he sets everything up is so great. Because it's like he's like playing with tropes. Yeah, you're like, you, even before we know where this movie's going, you're like, oh, that knife is going to come back into play, baby. Mm-hmm. Anne is getting even more uncomfortable, especially when Paul calls Peter Tom instead of Peter. And she says, I don't know what game you're playing, but I don't want any part. Please leave. And they say no. Mm-hmm. They No, no, actually, you got that wrong. They go, what game? You mean funny game? <laughs> Sorry, I forgot about that part where they okay. they specifically... That's when the title card drops in as well. Mm-hmm. Again. Yeah, but it, it, whizzes, it whizzes by really fast. <laughs> it does a quick spin in the middle. It continues off screen. Wait, it pauses in the middle of the screen real quick, and then it goes, gotta go. And then it... <laughs> it also it flies to the moon. Yeah. Gotta go to the moon. <laughs> And then, then she says, then Anna says, I'll see you soon. <laughs> see you later, and yeah. Like, and you're like, that's weird. I wonder if that's going to come back. <laughs> really weird that I didn't notice that first time. <laughs> you have to see it more than once. Yeah, I guess so. He's like hidden It is. It is hidden. George arrives with Georgie right behind him. And when she's like, please throw them out, he tries to calm things down, which makes her even madder. This is, I think, a great and real character choice for her to be like, fuck you, what are you doing? And George realizes he picked the wrong side pretty quickly. And he demands that they leave, and the friendliness of the two evaporates pretty quick as Peter smashes George in the knee with one of those great golf clubs after Paul gets slapped. Mm-hmm. And then that's when I, well, that's when I first thought to myself, <laughs> you just don't do that. Pretty rude. Pretty rude. Mm-hmm. They say you can help him, just don't do anything stupid. Just again, spectacular shot composition here as they're gathered around George in his chair. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time that he asks, Why are you doing this? And they say, Why not? Oh boy. <laughs> oh boy is right. Paul wants to play another game, hot and cold, to find the corpse of Lucky, who he used to test out the golf club instead of the ball. And this is, like you said, when he directs Anne to the body in the trunk. The camera finally detaches from her as she goes off screen, and he looks over his shoulder down the barrel of the camera to smirk at us. Yeah. Such a crucial moment, so well executed, totally takes you off guard, really fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like the, that's an all-time moment for, I mean, like, oh boy. I mean, it's so funny, because, like, I don't, I can't really explain, like, the feeling I got when I first saw that, of his acknowledgement of, like, you know, breaking the fourth wall. And then, like, knowing, because, like, the movie does feel unhinged there, but, like, when he looks at the camera, he's, like, letting you in on this, and you're like, oh, boy. (laughs) I'm like, what the fuck am I in for? (laughs) You know, this reminds me of a thing, not to get too off guard, uh, off, you know. No, no, go for it. But what was that fucking, I love, wait, what, I love you, Sarah Cooper? Beth Cooper. Beth Cooper. There's I love you or I love you Sarah Marshall. No, I love Sarah Marshall. It's a Sarah Marshall one. It's the guy whoever stars in that movie wrote the movie, and he did a thing in the movie where Jason Segel, Jason Segel. He opens the movie with showing his penis, right? 
And he did that as a active thing to be like, hey, listen, I just want to let you know that you're th- you think you're going into a normal rom-com, but me showing your, you my penis so early in the movie, I'm going to let you know that this is not a normal rom-com. Mm-hmm. And then what precedes it is a normal rom-com. But that's what fucking Haneke is so good at is like giving you these little hints of you don't know what you're walking in on. Yeah. You think you know what you're walking in on, but you don't. And I think that John Zorn music right up top kind of hints at that and then once that fourth wall is broken then you're like i don't know what the fuck i'm walking into (laughs) and it's done so well yeah it really is and the way that it's handled throughout the movie it's incredible this first time but it's used in various levels of subtlety throughout the movie you know when i was researching post-watching There's a lot of talk of some of the bigger moments, like this one, where he looks back and winks. But some of just the dialogue refers to us as an audience. A few of the gestures, uh, one that I'll point out in particular later, um, could be towards either the characters or us. Just a lot of really cool, I mean, not just cool, incredible work by by old Mike here. And a neighbor calls- He likes to be called Mikey Boy. Sorry, my apologies, Mikey Boy. Mm Mm-hmm. You learned that when you were kneecapping him. <laughs> yeah, he goes, don't do this to Mikey boy. <laughs> oh, please, don't do this to Mikey boy. <laughs> <laughs> I go, I'm sorry, pal, but your movie spooked me. <laughs> I forgot why I beat him up, too. I don't remember either. Probably because it spooked you. <laughs> <laughs> a neighbor calls out to Anne from the bay, and she knows to play it cool in front of them. This is a cool moment where like, it goes unspoken, but she just knows to play along. And Paul is, again, very polite, though he's also clearly laying the foundation for this family to be next, which is very scary as an audience member. Paul says things are easier when they're polite, but in these two lines alone, the dissociation is clear. You know, he says, I'm Paul and this is Peter. Come here, Tom. Where are your manners? Shake the man's hand. To the family, this is life and death, but the boys are characters even to each other. They know the camera is there and that this is fake and thus meaningless, which is why they can just go along and do whatever the fuck they want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, also another thing that I don't pick up on, on at all watching first time, I think it does definitely work subconsciously with all this stuff. Yeah. And they ask again, why are you doing this? And the answer is, I don't know. And this is where he sort of rattles off some of the stuff to, quote unquote, provide a reason. He says, Pete's dad is an alcoholic who divorced his mom, that he's having sex with her, that his family is yeah, trash, and he's gay. This is Joker mode. Yeah. This he, is Joker mode. He is full Joker mode. He actually says, do you want to know how I got these scars? <laughs> and you're like, what scars are you talking about, dude? What the fuck? <laughs> 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 He says all these things, and Pete is crying on the couch. He's getting into it, too, which I think is funny. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And George says, can you watch your language around my son? Which is so funny to me. What a flaccid thing to say in that situation. Like, Mm -hmm. the desperation of some sort of authority, like, for him to be like, well, they're younger. (laughs) Like, have some kind of respect. It's just, it's such a great scene. And uh, it concludes with them saying, what would you like to hear? What would make you happy? He's jaded and disgusted by the emptiness of existence. It's hard, really. Are you happy now, or are you on another version? And that may well be the actual version. And life is meaningless. The nihilists, man, they're fucking crazy. <laughs> like, they're fucking... They really are. <laughs> fucking Big Lebowski up in here, you know. Mm-hmm. You gotta watch out for them. 
Also, Big Lebowski is another, just like not to get off topic again, that's another fucking brilliant banger movie. Banger. It's just like watching that the second time and watching him say, this aggression will not stand. Um, and then he repeats it later on. Again, they're exactly like Michael Haneke. They're too smart for the movies that they make. Exactly. George says he gets it, and Paul is psyched. Great. We bet you that in 12 hours, you'll be kaput. The family doesn't want to bet, but Paul looks at us again and says, hey, there's got to be a bet, right? What do you think? You're probably on their side, huh? I love that moment, too, because, like, that's the trailer moment. If you watch the trailer, like, that's the big moment in the trailer. Yeah. But when you watch the movie, no one buys into it at all. Like, no one plays into that game. Yeah. And it, and it, and it's so, like, that is such a flaccid thing, too, of, like, when he presents that as a thing of, like, oh, this is what the movie's about. But it fails in the movie so hard, yeah. like, on purpose, too, because, like, it doesn't get the attention it, it it's, like, hoping for. Yeah. That's another brilliant fucking move by uh, Mikey boy. <laughs> Definitely. And the boys start to snipe at each other about Pete's eating. Uh, Paul has been calling him Tubby, and he literally ate raw beef, and he's still hungry. And this is where one of the moments that, like I said, I don't think it gets talked about a lot with this fourth wall break, but Paul says, what are these people going to think of you? Do you think that's attractive? And he gestures at the family, but at this point, the camera has flipped behind the couch. And so again, this like, well, what do you think? could really be directed at either of them, especially since they don't answer. Yeah. And this leads to them discussing Anne's attractiveness, and they decide to play another game, Cat in the Bag. And they put Georgie's head in a pillow, and he says, we're doing this to preserve moral decency. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy, right. That's right, Mikey boy. Uh, he Look, he's... Well, I think part of what I can kind of get behind for this movie is that, like, he's not, like playing subtle with this messaging <laughs> like he has something to say and he wants you to get it you know he wants you to understand what the movie is trying to communicate to you and i think that having fun lines in there like this where you know maybe it's a little uh obtuse but it's also fun and it does help to give you anchor points for the metaphor and for his theming to latch onto. i mean it's an incredibly smart movie that is like fucking so so precise with like every fucking line yeah but also, on its own, it works so fucking well mm -hmm. for any dummy to, like, have that messaging be translated subconsciously. Definitely. And and now that Georgie can't see, Anne, take off your clothes or we'll hurt him. And he forces George to tell Anne to do it, and they're both crying, and Pete sits down excited, and she does it, but as with the violence... The camera is ultra close on both Anne and George's faces as they deal with the shame and fear instead of, like, reveling in, in her undressing. Yeah. And having now demonstrated their power and feeling vindicated that he was correct about her not having quote-unquote jelly rolls, Pete says, okay, you can get dressed again. But Georgie has soiled himself. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think honestly— and, we all, we, and everyone watching the movie, we all point and laugh. <laughs> Someone comes out, this. she says, if peeing your pants is cool, consider me Miles Davis. Again, exactly. <laughs> mm -hmm. pulling and pulling she, from the greats. Mm -hmm. And then she flies to the moon. <laughs> There's a lot of people on the moon in this movie. <laughs> They're starting a up. colony up there. <laughs> and that's how Ad Astra starts. Wow. Everyone from Funny Games is on the moon. This particular uh, person also brings up one of the monkeys that, uh, that fights them on the moon in Ad Astra. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And I go, wow, he's really ahead of his time. <laughs> Mikey boy. Unbelievable. I remember watching Ad Astra going, this is the Mikey you're talking about? <laughs> Oh, my God. Actually, everyone in the theater said that at the exact same time. All $8 million worth of ticket sales were in that theater. Yeah, people are walking by the theater, and they faintly hear, That's what the monkey you're talking about? <laughs> and they turn their head going, Are they watching Ed Astro? <laughs> oh, my God. That reminds me. I've been meaning to rewatch Funny Games. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, Pete is being told by Paul to take care of Georgie, and the family leaps into action, so to speak. Uh, It's less effective than that might indicate, because you have to keep in mind it's a dude with a fucked-up leg, a half-naked lady, and a small child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not the most effective. (laughs) And my man has has mud in his britches, too. (laughs) That slows you down. I'll tell you through experience. I didn't even consider that. That run to the next house has got to be a fucking nightmare. (laughs) Of course, dude. you got to fucking... You got a swamp in your Levi's, dude. <laughs> Georgie does make a break for it, but he can't get over the gate as Paul and Pete tape up Anne, and they drag George back onto the chair, and she says, why don't you just kill us? And he says, you shouldn't forget about the importance of entertainment. Exactly. Kind of a little hit, hitting it a little too hard on the head, Mikey boy. <laughs> but. Georgie does make his way to the neighbor's house. When he gets to the door, it's unlocked, which is not a good sign, mm-hmm. and Paul is on his tail, and... Pete says all this for a carton of eggs, and when he grabs them, he accidentally drops the eggs again, this time on the carpet that Paul warned him to be careful about, and it's in this moment that Anne begs him to let her go. Again, a very humanizing moment, a very intense moment where she is begging, and he just says, stop degrading yourself. And done so well. Mm -hmm. God, what a fucking performance my man does, but go on. It's incredible. Georgie goes stealth mode in the house. He finds uh, both a gun and the corpse of his neighbor, and he locks himself in a side room, and the light goes on as Paul puts on more John Zarn movie music, Mm -hmm. but he finds him, and Paul tells him to cock it and pull the trigger, which Georgie does, and there's nothing in it, and Paul imitates the gunshot. What a fucking scene. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like the first real time of, like, having a cliche, a horror cliche play out in the most, like, limp way. Yeah, and then, you know, you see close up on the kid's face as he reacts, and this is where he's all snotty and crying. My man fucking sells it hard. (laughs) He has a face just to be fucking scared. Yeah. Back at home, Pete is flipping through the channels from an American Express ad to Putin to an old black and white movie to Ron Popeil, who I had to look up, but he's considered the father of the infomercial, to a natural disaster to NASCAR. And working on a couple levels, it's clear even without understanding what you're seeing that he feels the current era of of media is shallow and chaotic even beyond the horror stuff and what's a better way to have shown that than fucking vroom vroom vroom. in circles Mm -hmm. the most simple and also i don't remember what the original was i know i feel like they played something different on tv on the original but i didn't make it to this point uh i didn't make it to this point yeah it's one of my fucking Story of my I life. Know. I know this is not the movie I remember it being. Where's the lady flying to the fucking moon? It also is a, a perfect demonstration of what he was talking about in the uh, in the interview about everything being equalized in terms of all things being given equal importance. And Paul brings George back, and they decide it's getting to be about time to win the bet. And Paul gives both himself and Pete a shotgun shell, then goes to get something to eat. 
And again, we hear the gunshot from off screen, and there's howling before we cut back and see the TV now coated in blood spray, still watching the cars go round and around in circles. The boys talk about how he maybe fucked up the timing, and off screen, there's more fourth wall breaking happening where he says, shit, they're spent, you know, referring to us. This is why they have to leave, because they fucked up, they killed the kid, and now they have to go and let us build back up. I have an update for you. Mm -hmm. In the original movie, it is, it's not NASCAR, but it is car racing. Wow. Whatever the European version of the NASCAR. Uh, They don't go into, here's the thing. They don't go in a circle. They go wavy all around. Mm. And I think them going in one circle um, it, it helps the movie out more. So Definitely. what I'm saying is is he made a more precise, perfect movie with the American version. So I was right on the whole time. All along. The whole shot for shot remake would have been worth it if that was the only change. Yep. That cargo circle, not cargo <laughs> zigzag. Exactly. You understand me, Mikey boy? <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, the camera finally pulls back and after they leave, and we get a shot of the room with Georgie's body tucked behind the TV and George on the floor in front of the couch. And there's this amazing nine-ish minute fixed take from the wide shot, silent after she finally gets the TV off. It's, it's just incredible. It's what an amazing, impactful scene. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. She hops away to get a knife and undo her tape. George stirs in the back and manages to sit up. And the, the fixed take persists as he starts to cry in fear, anger, agony. Anne comes back and comforts him. And just what a tender moment in the middle of this awful, awful hell that they're in. The relationship between the two of them we see over and over is not what you might expect from a movie like this where where they're constantly like communicating and like discussing like oh i'm like can you forgive me she's like i fucking love you it's great and he tells her that she has to go and get help get dressed and go for help and her phone starts to get signal again having dried out a bit but isn't working quite right still and his was in the car he says he says go get the get the go in the car and she pukes, which also feels very real to have the shock finally wear off a little bit. Mm-hmm. And she tries to blow dry the phone, but he says, we're wasting time. You got to go. And again, please forgive me. She smooches him. She says she loves him. Really fantastic. Okay, what what horny podcast are you running here, dude? <laughs> Sorry, man. They give a smooch. I can't, I can't talk my way around it. <laughs> All right. It's like I'm watching porn right now. Well, look. Mikey Boy is the one who put it in, so blame him. That is true. He's the real sicko. George keeps trying 911. They killed my son. When he says that to the to the uh, what he thinks is the operator, oh my god, your heart just breaks. Yeah, and his leg looks rough. He's beaten down. Yeah, I remember seeing that point in that movie. Your leg looks ugly, dude. Fucking (laughs) get it your shit together, loser. (laughs) Loser. Mm -hmm. Fix your leg, idiot. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly, dude. Anne is running down the street. She sees a car coming down the street, and she hides behind a tree. It's just a van, and she says, I'm not going to miss this fucking next one. (laughs) So she gets out into the road. Cut. Who knows what happened, right? Exactly, exactly. George covers Georgie with a sheet. Again, this emphasis on dignity that that Haneke is, is really trying to communicate. And suddenly a golf ball rolls out, and the look on George's face is just so sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like not even angry. It's just sad. Player one, level two. I mean, really, it is like because they really do sell it as this like it's a part. It's the part of the movie where I think they're finally getting away, and it's like you're thinking like 
wait, why the fuck did they leave? Yeah, just to fuck with him. Just to fuck with him. And, you know, that Pete throws Anne back into the into the doorway. Paul throws a golf ball and misses, which made me laugh really hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. And George and Anne are all fucked up because she didn't go get the phone in the car, which still had a little bit of battery. Mm-hmm. And they're dealing with that as the boys argue in the corner about the rules. And they ungag her because it's boring when mutes suffer. We want to entertain our audience, right? Show them what we can do. Acknowledging us, even though it's it's less like winking directly down the barrel of the camera. There's also a fucked up transference of responsibility here. You know, he says, if you don't play the game, you'll make us gag you. And I said, that's too far. Too much. This is this is where I really started saying, these guys are bad news. <laughs> I don't think I like these guys anymore. Yeah, they were polite. And I said, look, I can excuse a lot with some politeness. Mm-hmm. Murdering their child. Politeness goes a long way. Yeah. Well, murdering a child, that's politeness fine. goes a long way. That's right. But when he says, problematically... <laughs> I will, you make us gag you too much. Mm-hmm. He's, that's he needs to fly right to the moon. <laughs> in in Hollywood, we call that a no queen moment. Wow, Mikey boy, Mikey boy. The game that they want to play is loving wife. And Paul looks at us again and he says, "You think it's enough? You want a real ending right now with plausible plot development?" And so she has to pick who's up first and how they're going to die. She can either put off George's death with her own, and she can spare him the pain of the knife by taking it herself, if she so chooses. So there's two decisions that she has to make. But she's silent, and they stab George off screen as she grimaces and spits at Paul. And this is where it gets really interesting, because the goalposts start to really move. She says, okay, I'll play. I'll make the decision. He says, no, now you have to say a little prayer. And they do some squabbling, and she does the prayer, and now the goalposts move again. Say it backwards. And even before she makes this play for the gun, the inevitability really draws on you. The way that they're, the the funny games that they're playing, (laughs) toying with them here. I mean, like, the the whole, like, back and forth with the prayer of, like, you don't know a prayer is such a, like, a early comedy moment of like these like knuckleheads getting together like you don't know prayer like okay uh, that's a short prayer dude um, <laughs> he only knows the one as well yeah and playing into that is yeah she does make a play for the gun because the inevitability dawns on her as well and she shoots pete huge big hole in him very satisfying moment very cartoonish <laughs> death that is un- he flies back yes the wall and it's also the first actually violence that we actually see depicted on screen yes and it's such a fun moment because at the same time that you are like wow i can't believe it this is so great there's another part of you that goes there's no way that that's the movie like this yeah. is not that movie and you are ready for it to get taken away without even knowing what's coming next. And you're like, well, how's this going to happen? And there's no fucking way you would ever predict what the hand man's going to do. Oh my gosh. Fun and surreal. Raising the level of meta even higher. He friggin' searches the, for the remote after smacking her with the butt of the gun and rewinds the damn movie. It's in incredible and i loved in a very fun bit of irony he actually stops right before it would have been her saying the prayer backwards perfectly yeah it's great it's just fucking like i said i go i went lol he rewinded (laughs) the movie (laughs) he says you failed say goodbye to georgie infantilizing and shooting him in one damn go 
And they lead her out to the docks. They get in the boat with her. She finds the knife. She starts sawing at her binding. But they bring her over after dismissing her Olympic-level spirit, realize that it's after eight already, and they're almost about to lose their bet, and say, ciao, Bella, and fucking toss her overboard (laughs) right before she flies up to the moon. Yeah, right before she gets to the moon with all those people (laughs) and the apes. That's right. They're on the moon. Tommy Lee Jones is up there. It is like it is so funny too that like that's the final play too because like that's the first thing that they really hint at is the knife landing and you're like oh my god this is gonna be such a big moment and it's underplayed so <laughs> darn well when they kill her they just like fucking toss her backwards. Yes, oh, and it's just, it's such an afterthought on their end after having this discussion about like there are two realities that they're floating in between. Yeah, they're discussing a movie where someone is struggling to communicate across a black hole that they got sucked into, and it turns out that the universe that the hero is in is fiction, but his family is in reality, and and he says, isn't fiction real? Why? Well, you can see it in a movie, right? Of course. Well, then it's just as real as reality, because you can see it too. Bullshit. And then he just says, why? And again, the sort of, well... I, I don't know. Like, why not? Like, that's the whole just point at the of the end this. of the movie, just arguing the themes of the movie that <laughs> yeah. just happened that they've been talking to you about. Yeah. Yeah. My man don't miss. They dock at the home of the person we met before, start the whole dealie over again with asking for some eggs. Paul walks in and starts eyeing the place up, then looks right at us. Freeze, metal jazz, title cards, credits in silence. Mm-hmm. It's great. Right. It's, it's fucking a fucking great. great movie. It's an incredible fucking movie. And in fact, Clay, we've now reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie, but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. I think the only reason that this is a movie that's the greatest horror movie ever made is I, horror is a very special genre that falls into tropes really quick. Mm-hmm. And it was a mo- it's a genre that is very comfortable, same with romantic comedies. They feel very comfortable repeating the same tropes over and over again. And this movie is the antithesis to that. Yeah. And what a horror movie originally tried to do with like shock and awe and surprise, it becomes horror movies became watered down because the shock and awe became predictable, negating the shock and the awe. But this movie, since it's the antithesis of that, it delivers what horror movies wanted to deliver originally but can't anymore because of how, um, uh, how tropey the genre has become. Yeah. And for that and everything else I said, this that's why this movie is the greatest mo- horror film of all time, even though it's not really even that spooky. <laughs> Absolutely. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is just so confident. He explicitly said in one of the interviews, he said, this movie is for people who deserve it. And so if you love it, and you're picking up what it's putting down, that's great. This one is for you. And if not, that's fine too. It doesn't make it less impactful for those who it does connect with. And the ones the, the ones that it doesn't really connect with, that's honestly probably who the movie's for anyways. <laughs> so my man just can't lose. We're the audience. We're forcing characters to get chopped up and have sex for our entertainment. But this movie forces you to reckon with that. It disregards gore and nudity in favor of emotions and naturalism. And it's also the best because regardless of if you agree with the thesis or not, it's not only starting a conversation, but it also does it very artfully. The movie is, by itself, 
very good. Yes. The performances are fantastic. Like I said, Tim Roth and Naomi Watts are fantastic. Michael Pitt and Brady Corbett are so keyed in to exactly what their role requires, and they deliver it perfectly. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to see a situation where this falls flat. And I think the couple in particular, like I said, do a great job shouldering that emotional burden and resisting the urge to provide explanation while pointed is absolutely terrifying as well. So it pulls double duty. All these things come together to create the best horror movie ever made. There you go, folks. That's how we landed on it, and that's, that's how they landed on the moon. That's right. That's right. Clay, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This was an absolute blast. Please tell people where they can check out your show, if the movie's coming out anywhere, that uh, that you can point them towards all that jazz. Well, just Clay Tatum everywhere. Uh, Instagram, Twitter, just Clay Tatum. Hell yeah. Name, and just keep your eyes out for updates of where you can see the Civil Dead next, because I need so. I need all you fucking sickos to watch my fucking <laughs> film, okay? Capiche? Understood? That's right. This is the next uh, the next Funny Games book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the next best horror movie ever made. That's right. I'm, I'm sure it will show up on this podcast uh, before too long. Thank you so much. <laughs> as far as my plugs, people can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That name applies pretty much everywhere, but I'm mostly on Twitter. There's also the Patreon. If you're really enjoying the show, there's bonus episodes and stuff on there covering all kinds of stuff like video games like Resident Evil. And we just talked about Kurt Vonnegut and his cool connection between sci-fi and like social horror. And Can I tell you another? I don't want to interrupt your plugs. No, 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 can no. I tell you another great horror movie? Yeah. The, the video game PT. I oh my God. Uh, fucking enough <laughs> I, that is i'm telling you that is my it's, it's great that may genuinely be the best horror movie ever made i don't know if you talked about it in your video game whatever not yet just, hey man we'll have to have you back you come on and do I'm a, not, a I will full full whatever i have never played it i've only seen youtube videos and video essays about it that makes it even more like a movie <laughs> yeah you're absolutely yeah it's more movie like you're out of control it's fucking great there God you go bless. Yeah. yeah, so look forward to that, I guess. We'll, we'll get Clay back to talk BT. <laughs> but yeah, uh, check out the Patreon. There's all kinds of great episodes and stuff on there. And uh, leave us a rating and a review if you're enjoying the show, because it really helps. Okay, that's it. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye, gang.